March 29th, Tuesday. I'm not messing around, folks, because I'm Guy Adami, joined by Dan Nathan. I'm not bearing the lead. This is Market Call. In literally 30 seconds, we're going to be joined by Michael Saylor, CEO of MicroStrategy, Total Stud. Today's episode brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. And of course, Open Exchange, because they manage the virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. And I'm telling you, this one matters. Dan Nathan, how are you? I'm doing well, Guy. And this is always a treat for us. You know, you and I, I know that you've gotten to know Michael over the last couple of years since he kind of started leveraging MicroStrategy's balance sheet and, and buying the Bitcoin. You guys have had a lot of great conversations. I've learned a lot about why someone in his situation might be interested in doing this and why people, whether they be individual retailer or they might be CFOs of large publicly traded companies might be interested in doing the same. So for me, again, without bearing the lead, I'm just psyched to hear what Michael's got to say. Without further ado, as they say, let's welcome Michael Saylor. I see, you know, it's interesting you have the Pequod behind you because for a lot of people, you are the Moby Dick out there. A lot of Ahabs looking for you. Well, we have found you. Thanks for joining us. I don't know if that's the Pequod. I, I'm taking a little poetic license. Michael, how you doing? Awesome. Thanks for having me. It's great always to happy have to you. be with you too. Again. No, you're and you're a gentleman. You're always so gracious with your time. A lot's changed. A lot's happened in the world, obviously, since you last joined us. And I know you've been talking to a lot of people, but if you could share with us some of your thoughts, geopolitical. I mean, just in terms of some of these rate moves we've seen, Federal Reserve. There's so much in the news. How are you wrapping your head around some of this stuff? Well, I think if we look at the macroeconomic environment. The inflation is and currency devaluation is the number one issue. And I will give you an interesting statistic, Guy. Do you know that Zillow thinks that my house is 305 times more valuable than it was in 1930? <laughs> so a lot of times, if you go look at Bureau of Labor trade statistics, they'll tell you that the dollar's lost 95% of its value over the last 80 years. But that's actually not true. The dollar's lost 99.7% of its value if your benchmark was Miami Beach real estate or any scarce desirable asset. I bet the story's not that different for New York City or Hamptons real estate or Picasso's or the like. So inflation's an issue. And I figure in, you know, the CPI is 8%, but the real inflation rate in assets is 15 to 20%. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that all these currencies are weakening, right? Every Eastern European currency is weakening. The yen is weakening against the dollar. I mean, everybody is weakening and the dollar is losing 20% of its value. So, so I think the macro environment says I got to find an inflation hedge. The political environment on one hand is a massive endorsement for digital assets by the White House last week when mm-hmm. President Biden said 40 million Americans need digital assets and we're going to embrace this. And I think a massive advertisement for Bitcoin with the Ukrainian-Russian war, and especially the sanctions, where we seized $300 billion worth of treasury assets from the Russians, I think the Chinese have $3 trillion worth of assets, and that might have got their attention. And pretty much the conclusion is, if you're any nation state in the world and you think you might ever be in conflict with another nation state and you're holding their credit derivatives or their currency derivatives or their currency or gold in one of their banks, that's not really proper anymore. So I think that I think that's got everybody scratching their head saying, I don't trust the currency as a long-term store of value, A. 
and I don't trust my assets to not be seized, B, what am I going to do? And then right in the middle of that, you see things like Bitcoin poking their head up saying, eh, check me out. Well, that's exactly right. In the last couple of months, it's made all the things that you've been talking about literally for the last couple of years and to a certain extent have come to fruition in real life experiences. So it's done the talking for you in a lot of ways. And it's interesting you mentioned the weakness of the dollar, something I talk about all the time. Since I want to say the Eisenhower administration, probably before that, every administration that comes into power has talked about wanting a strong dollar. I think, quite frankly, they want anything. But it was only the Trump administration that came out and said, you know what, strong dollar is really not in our best interest. So I guess now that you're seeing our central bank, our Federal Reserve and other central banks try to stem the tide, is it too late? Is the genie out of the bottle in terms of fiat currencies? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anybody wants a strong currency. I think that the U.S. is weakening their currency. The yield curve is dead flat, Guy. It was like 240 basis points mm -hmm. for one or two year money and 240 basis points for 30 year money. And the irony is, in the face of that, where you've got 8% CPI, probably you've got 10 to 15% PPI, you've got 15 to 20% asset inflation, you've got a 2% long-term interest rate. In the face of that, you've got the Japanese holding 10-year money at 25 basis points, exercising yield curve control, saying they will literally buy infinite bonds to hold the interest rate at 25 basis points. And the result is, lo and behold, surprise, surprise, the yen is weakening against the dollar. And then, of course, the mainstream media narrative is this is really great for Japanese manufacturers. <laughs> now, it's not a problem. There's no inflation. And you look at it and you say, well, it's pretty hopeless. You've got like, I would say, $100 trillion of currency, $100 trillion of currency derivatives in the form of sovereign debt, and another $100 trillion worth of equities and commercial real estate that are value-based on fiat cash flows. So that's $300 trillion worth of assets with a negative real yield of anywhere from minus 15% to minus 20% properly understood. Improperly understood, the negative real yield is only minus 6 to 8%, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So that's your situation. If you're a rational investor, you have to stampede the property. And now the debate is just what's the most desirable property? Is it land? Is it art? Is it sports teams? Is it gold? Is it Bitcoin? Is it some other crypto? Do you have you invented the, you know, have you invented coal fusion, you know, in the next Tesla? And are you going to buy that? And so that's the investor attitude. I I don't see there's no political conviction or will or any likelihood that we're going to stop the expansion of the money supply. I mean, no one's expecting that. No one's even talking about that. So that being the case, I think your real choice is just, do you want to be long property? Which property? And of course, my attitude would be, you should be leveraged long property in an inflationary environment. You want to be short the dollar by the way, you want to be short the dollar because it's like negative 15% real yield, but I even more like to be short the peso, which is probably a negative 35% real yield. So you want to be short a weak fiat currency by a debt. And then you want to be long a property, ideally a non-sovereign store of value. Or if you're going to hold property in a nation, hopefully you either own the country 
or you trust the country. You know, how valuable is a billion dollars of, of real estate in Moscow right now, right, to anybody in the Western European region? So, Michael, you know, you're two years into this experiment. Bitcoin's been around since, you know, I guess late 09, early 2000, you know, 10. And it was obviously basically created for, you know, all the things that you just mentioned. Obviously, censorship resistance is a really important part of it, store of value, fiat debasement, that sort of thing. And so we get that. If you're new to this story and you're this is the first time someone's listening to Michael Saylor talk about these sorts of issues, you know, I look at Bitcoin's market cap at under a trillion, right? And I say to myself, all those other asset classes that you just mentioned, specifically real estate, are magnitudes of that. What do you say to somebody of where they are if they're intrigued by this idea? Like, what stage are we in? What inning are we in? Is it the first pitch of the first inning with less than one trillion in market cap? Because, you know, some people think, you know, obviously the trains left the station here. This is something where millions of Americans own Bitcoin. But is this the sort of thing that is it too late for all intents and purposes for some people who kind of just new to the story? Well, I mean, it, it seems to me that. That it's pretty obvious there's a hundred trillion dollars worth of monetary energy or wealth that would be better served to be sitting in a synthetic digital asset like Bitcoin than to be sitting in real estate or gold or or equities that are currency derivatives or other kinds of weak currencies. So you got a hundred X opportunity or addressable market from here under even without considering inflation. By the time we get there, it'll probably be 200 X. So so I don't think we're too early. I think we're one, two percent into it if you look at it weighted. If you look at it from a time point of view, if you're an institutional investor, the first 10 years of a crypto network, you probably have to just sit and stare and see if it's going to break. So it was engineered, you know, January 3rd, 2009, but you had to wait until about 2020 before you were sure it wasn't going to be hacked, banned, broken, copied. And so I think 10 years later, it starts to become interesting. We're year two of institutional adoption. Mm -hmm. You know, year one maybe started with MicroStrategy bought $250 million of Bitcoin in August of 2020, and that runs about a year. Like we're 18 months into our journey here. So you're in the middle of year two of institutional adoption. There's 10 years of education, you know, and in those 10 years, what happens in, you know, at the end of year one, while well, Elon Musk gets involved, and then all of a sudden, there's 24 Bitcoin miners that are publicly traded vehicles about now. There's another dozen companies probably come public. So you're watching, you know, the institutionalization of the asset class, we're waiting for guidance from the SEC, the FDIC. The executive order from the White House last week was a, a massive milestone. Biden's election was a massive milestone, but the executive order was a double massive milestone because that directed 18 agencies to figure this out. That'll be 24 months. By the end of the first Biden administration, I think we have 80% of the regulatory clarity that you need to understand this. That means that from the year 2024 to the year 2028, 80% has been figured out. And by the year 2030, maybe 90% has been figured out. And at that point, I think it's just kind of like a growth industry. I mean, it'll be a nice growth industry 2030 to 2040. But right now we're in hyper growth, mm -hmm. early stage, lots of questions, lots of people don't understand it. But I love that part because I think this is the stage. It's like 2011 Google stock or 2011 Amazon or Apple or Facebook. 
just at the stage where it's kind of unstoppable, it's necessary. A reasonable, objective person would say, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, they were all useful and necessary in the year 2012. And yet only you know 95% of the people were under-allocated. And then those things worked for the next eight to 10 years. And then by the year 2021, every 21-year-old Uber driver, if you asked him, would have said, oh yeah, I own Facebook stock or I own Amazon stock, or they get in debates about whether Google's better than Apple, you know, and it's it's not really the it's not that high growth stage anymore. It's that maturing dominant monopoly stage where now you're just tied into the to the greater growth of the techno economy. And that plays into what you've said now for a while. You know, I think people listen, we're guilty of it. When I say we, and I use this term loosely, the media is guilty of it. We use we talk about Bitcoin and we typically put currency on the back end of it. And, you know, I think you correctly point out it's really not a currency, it's property, but that's <coughs> We'll talk about that probably a little bit later. What I want to talk, I don't want to bury the lead here, as they say, but if people aren't following you on Twitter, they're doing Twitter wrong. And, and some of the stuff you come up with is genius. But, you know, Archimedes said, you give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum and I'll move, I'll move the earth. And that's effectively true. And in terms of leverage, Dan alluded to it at the top of this show. Once again, you're using leverage in terms of adding to your balance sheet. And can you talk to us about some of the decisions that are made and talk about that, what it takes from the board point of view and what you decided to do with another, I think, $250 million or so dollars that you were used, that your Bitcoin holdings is leveraged for? The best way to think about it from a company, a family can do this, a company can do this, a municipality can do this, and a government and a nation state can do this. Everybody can apply this leverage. For MicroStrategy, we started with $250 million of investable capital, and we put it to Bitcoin about 18 months ago, and we have parlayed that into about $6 billion of capital in 18 months from $250 million through a series of a Dutch auction, equity offerings, convert offerings, debt offerings, and just today we did an you know, asset-backed loan, and that's what we announced today. So... You know, from our point of view, we took a stock that was the bottom at $90 a share. It was 120 when we started this journey. And we've driven it up by a factor of four or more. And we created billions and billions of dollars of shareholder value. What's the lever? The lever is Bitcoin is the only scarcity in the universe. It's capped at 21 million coins. A thousand years from now, there's every reason to believe there's 21 million of these things. And if you compare that to gold or silver or oil or natural gas or soybeans or land or cotton or whatever you want to call a commodity, they're all being produced per demand as the price goes up and Bitcoin isn't. So the leverage here is you short the currencies, you basically borrow a billion dollars at two or three percent or one percent interest. And you borrow that because the currency is losing 15% or 20% of its value a year. So when you grab a billion dollars that's got a negative real yield of 15%, you already got $150 million a year benefit there. Mm -hmm. Then you flip it into a hard asset. I'm not going to call it a currency because to be a currency, you have to be able to transfer it every day with no tax event. So you convert it from a, a weak currency to a hard property buy a billion dollars of property. And if the property is getting more valuable and more in demand, then, and Bitcoin's going up 100% a year on average for 12 years. 
So we're basically, we're trading something that costs 3% money for something that yields 100% or something that's got a negative real yield of 15% for something with a positive real yield of 100%. You're arbitraging the difference. So we've done that every which way. And it's worked well for us and it's worked well for our shareholders. Our, our stock is like a, a, a currency of a nation state. If you were like the Saudis or you're the Emiratis and you're selling oil and you're selling oil in dollars, you're pumping up the US dollar, but you're also absorbing a 15% a year loss. So when you actually sell a trillion dollars worth of oil, you've taken a $150 billion loss for your own nation state. If you turn around and start to sell that oil for CNY, you're just accepting Chinese inflation. When you turn around and you sell your oil for gold, Well, now instead of pumping up a $100 trillion currency like the dollar or $30 trillion currency like the CNY, you're pumping up a $10 trillion currency like gold. But what if you turned around and sold your oil for Bitcoin? Now you're actually leaning on $1 trillion currency. And the difference between Bitcoin versus gold versus CNY versus USD is they're making more of those other things. Gold, they're making effectively 2 to 4% more, probably 4% more because they keep hypothecating it and you don't control the gold markets. The metal markets look pretty rigged based upon the nickel fiasco of last mm-hmm. week. Nobody believes them. So when I talk about give me a lever long enough and I can move the world, what I mean is the fulcrum is Bitcoin because it is the most certain thing in the financial universe, the economic universe of the human race. And if you are a company, and you were adopted as your reserve asset, which is what MicroStrategy did, you just lean on that lever and you drive your stock up. If Tesla did it, if Tesla had gone and bought $10 billion or $20 billion worth of Bitcoin, it'd be worth $100 billion right now. If Apple Computer did it, what would happen to Bitcoin if Apple said, we're going to basically sweep all of our Apple cash flows into Bitcoin? Okay, well, Bitcoin would go up by a factor of four. Mm-hmm. Apple would end up making $500 billion. Their stock would go up by a trillion. So anybody can do this at any scale. But now what happens if the Emiratis do it or the Saudis do it? It would be worth a trillion dollars to them if they adopted as a reserve asset where they sweep their treasury reserves into this hard currency, if you will, or hard mm-hmm. money. We'll call it hard money. Currencies are going to be the province of nation states, and that's always going to be political. But what you can't dispute is if you've exported $100 billion worth of products, services, or commodities for your country, and if you trade that for Argentine pesos or bolivars, it's pretty obvious, right? You exported $100 billion worth of good stuff, and you end up with $100 billion of paper going to zero. If you trade it for $100 billion worth of sovereign debt with a negative real yield, the only difference is at a minus you know, 15% negative real yield, you cut your money in half every five years. Trade $100 billion of real stuff in return for $25 billion worth of credit derivatives. And who's paying the price? Well, the shareholders of the company with a weak treasury asset or the citizens of country yeah. with a weak you know, sovereign debt or a weak treasury strategy, the world's waking up to that right Mm -hmm. now, right? It's like everybody's got their bell rung. 
Well, Michael, what, what do you say to, let's say, critics, you know, who say, okay, that all makes sense. I understand that you've been the CEO of a publicly traded company for decades now. You've obviously been through cycles and you've seen, you know, the debasement of those assets that you've hold on your balance sheet. And that's why you made the move that you did. What if they say to you, you just have the wrong vehicle to do it? Like, you know what I mean? So if a stock price is generally, you know, reflective of the prospects of a company's corporate earnings, and this has nothing to do with that. I'm just curious what you say about that, because that's a common criticism that you have. I mean, essentially, you're running a leveraged crypto hedge fund, right? Is that fair to say for all intents and purposes? Yeah, well, it's not a hedge fund because we're not hedging. We're just unilaterally long. It's not really a hedge fund either. Hedge funds actually don't allocate more than 2% of their capital in any one position. <laughs> We're 1,000% allocated to one thing. It's hardly, a, yeah. it's hardly a hedge in any way. With regard to how, whether we got the right vehicle, well, we looked at 25,000 different things. We considered art and real estate and commodities and every equity in the world and 15,000 other cryptos and every precious metal and every other strategy and all the derivative strategy. And I, and I have experience with them all. And, and we picked the one that we thought was engineered to be the soundest treasury reserve asset. How do you know? Well, you spend a thousand hours studying it and you wait mm-hmm. a decade to see whether it will fail. And then you wait for it to be attacked 10,000 times. And if it's, and if it's the winner, it's not 100% certain. But what I would say is it looked better than every other alternative. And at some point, you're going to lose 99% of your wealth in the course of one lifetime if you take the conventional strategy. So when you know you're going to lose 99% of your wealth, at some point, you got to take a risk, right? That drives the exodus, right? The ship behind me is people sailing across the ocean because they knew life was hopeless if they didn't leave land. And I, I think that you've got a perfect example if you're sitting in any country with a weakening, collapsing currency, whether it's Turkey or Syria or Argentina or, or Venezuela or fill in the blank, it's hopeless unless you take a risk. And, you know, Dan, my last point I make is there's a very conventional view like equities are conventional stores of value. Well, equities aren't stores of value in Venezuela. Equities aren't stores of value right now in Russia. If the currency collapses or if the counterparty is not trustworthy, then the equity is not a store of value. And and in this case, if you're going to hold an equity, I would say, like, I would rather in this environment own a stock like Disney that owned the intellectual property rights to every cultural icon in the Western world, intellectual property, like, you know, as opposed, or I'd rather own a company that owned a thousand Picassos and Leonardo da Vinci paintings because they're property backed, or I'd rather own a company that owned a billion dollars of gold. I don't really want to own a competitive company that's valued on cash flows. That's like, do you really want to own a rancher in Argentina when the peso loses 99% of its value? And if the government says you can't export your beef, well, I mean, it doesn't look like it's all that safe a bet. So I think that every investor today needs to be a macroeconomic analyst. If you don't take into account macroeconomics, then you can come to the wrong conclusion. It wasn't the case before 2020. I think you could have had a conventional 60-40 portfolio and you could have conventionally thought equity is worth something and debt is worth something. 
But again, I put you in an extreme situation like Zimbabwe and the currency collapse or Weimar Republic, you know, Germany. 60-40 portfolios don't work. Nope. Conventional thinking doesn't work. Conventional thinking doesn't help if you're owning Russian exposure in anything in the past month. And so there you're invited to take a broader worldview. And so we've taken a broader worldview. Everybody else is invited to also consider all their assumptions and what their risks are. I think it's fascinating. We talk about, and I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, I think there are people out there that think you sort of happenstanced into this. But as you mentioned, I mean, you looked at thousands of different opportunities and you spent thousands of hours analyzing and you came to this. So there was nothing happenstance about it. But with that said, we have a question from one of our viewers. Are there any other technologies, crypto technologies specifically out there that are sort of piquing your interest? I think if, if you look at the environment right now, there's a massive demand for two things. Cryptocurrency in the form of a stable coin. If I have crypto dollars sitting on a network and I can, I can grab a million dollars and move it at the speed of light and I can do it without generating a taxable event, then that's very interesting as a payment rail, as like call it your checking account. And then crypto property, my savings account. So Bitcoin is obviously the king of crypto property. If you look at where the, the action right now is, it's in the stable coins that are exploding. And you can see, see this very interesting market dynamic between Tether and Circle and UST and what Terra Labs is doing. And if I walk down the street and I ask people, everybody in Africa or Asia or whatever, would you like crypto dollars in the palm of your hand that the bank can't seize and the government won't take? And, you know, asked anybody in Syria or Afghanistan, they would say in a heartbeat, yes. Even in China, everybody in China wants crypto US dollars, right? Everybody wants dollars. It's not because dollars are great long-term investment. It's because dollar is a much better short-term investment than every other currency on earth. And so there's a massive demand for that. And that technology has gone from like 5 billion to 200 billion in like 24 months. And so there's a lot of action there. I think that'll go to a trillion guy. I think it'll go to 5 trillion if the regulators you know, provide any kind of guidance. There's currently like this very interesting struggle. Will FDIC insured banks issue this? They're afraid to. Mm -hmm. The regulators want them to. They're afraid to early. Will corporations like Tether, Circle issue this? They're doing it now. Very successful with the backing of some currency and some debt and credit instruments, or will the algorithmic stable coins, you know, like UST or DAI, will they do it? And that's pure crypto. And that's going to be a very interesting story to cover. So Michael, you know, you mentioned how the censorship resistance, you mentioned how, you know, Bitcoin versus let's say the ruble, this has worked out really well, right? In, in this current geopolitical dust up we have and the potential for that to kind of catch some steam around the world makes a lot of sense, especially if you think about it in the underdeveloped world. And then in, in, in the West here, we have this situation where you've been talking about inflation. And I know we just talked about it. It's been bubbling up, right, for really years under the surface here. But now all of a sudden, we have these headline numbers, the CPI and the PPI. And so my question to you is, was it kind of frustrating when the headlines here in the US were, you know, inflation readings at 40-year highs and Bitcoin was trading at 30,000. And, and I know, and I have a lot of 
very smart friends in the digital asset space. They're like, you're thinking about it all too wrong. You're thinking about it like a, a fast money guy, right? And, and so I'm just curious, as your thought, because the headlines were not really commensurate with the price action in the underlying here, but if you look over what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, it was working very well. I think there's a battle between East and West, and there's a battle between the fundamentalist and the traders, the hodlers and the traders. The hodlers have spent 100 hours studying this. They've concluded this is engineered perfect property or perfect money. They've got a 10-year to 100-year time horizon. They're going to hold it as generational wealth transfer. The traders think it's a risk-on asset, and they're thinking that I'm going to short it to hedge out my NASDAQ position. And they haven't spent 100 hours thinking about it or studying it. They're just fast money. So over the near term, the traders win, but over the long term, the hodlers <coughs> win. And then in the East versus the West, like if you're, you know, Manhattan Upper East Side and you've got a lot of money in the stock market, you feel very comfortable. You like your life and you like your models because they've worked fine for you, you know. But if you're living in Ukraine or Russia or South America or Kazakhstan or China or fill in the blank or Afghanistan or Syria or Lebanon or Turkey, you know, the Upper East Side, you know, stock portfolio isn't working for you. You don't have that option. Your option is you put it into Bitcoin or you lose it all. And so this means different things for different people, right? If, if you live outside the U.S., this is a lifeboat. It may save your life. It'll keep you from being impoverished or, or, or murdered or left destitute or starving, right? But if you're in the U.S., you're either an intellectual hodler and you get it or you're a fast money trader. And every month that goes by, there are fewer and fewer traders, there are more and more hodlers. And the variable here is education. We are educating the masses on what this is. And if you think it's a speculative asset, you know, when you use words like it's just a crypto thing, if you're using crypto, that means you really don't understand it because nobody describes Bitcoin as crypto anything. When you say Bitcoin, it says, oh, I might understand it. And I think this is really just a process of maturing of the asset class. And in the near term, you know, I joke, it's kind of good to have the fast money traders because I need someone to sell it to me. Right? <laughs> Otherwise, nobody would sell it to me. Once they're all educated, nobody's going to sell this stuff. They're going to hold it forever. And then you're going to have to pay 10x more money to buy it. So I almost don't want the world to get too educated too fast. Maybe I'm being tongue in cheek there. I'm doing my best to educate the world. No, you <laughs> are. Right and, I mean, and if you want further, I mean, people should go to seller.org for sure just to check out, you know, if you really want to get in, into the weeds here, you do an amazing job. Next week, something's going to happen. It's going to pretty much break the internet. I don't know if you can do that. I mean, I use that term because it sounds like I'm cool when I say it. But you're going to be on stage with Kathy Wood at Bitcoin 2022 in Miami. Can you just sort of give us a quick primer as to what's going to go on? Well, that's going to be the biggest gathering of Bitcoiners probably ever in the history of the industry. I think 35,000 people or more are converging on Miami Beach. 100,000 people in the crypto industry will be there as well. Just about everybody, the who's who of people in the industry are all showing up for that conference. It's, it's pretty extraordinary. I'm impressed by the turnout. I mean, as you know, Kathy is quite a technology visionary and she's been early on the Bitcoin story. And so we're we're going to talk about you know institutional views toward Bitcoin and the technology outlook and and our thoughts about it. So I'm excited about that. 
But I think there'll be a lot of interesting news next week at that conference. A lot of things are coming together all at the same time. No question about it. I mean, the stars, in terms of your world, it's certainly aligned, Michael. I know how busy you are, so we want to be respectful of your time. We're definitely going to ask you back if that's okay. But again, thanks for joining us on Market Call today. Always happy to see the both of you. Keep it up. You're the man. And I want to thank, again, Michael Saylor, CEO of MicroStrategies. Check out Saylor.org. And also, this conference next week is going to be one for the record books. And we'll have Michael back for sure. And I want to thank our sponsors, FactSet and Open Exchange. Dan and I will be back 1 p.m. tomorrow with Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Later, folks. Thanks, Michael.